This is sermon number 29 today in our suggested topic sermon series. It's the ninth of 14 in the category of Christian living. And the requested topic today is amusing ourselves to death versus our mission from God, productivity, okay, going along doing the will of God. There, there are a couple of book titles in this, suge- in this suggestion that was given. So uh, Neil Postman wrote the book called Amusing Ourselves to Death in, in 1986, and I, I read that uh, some years ago. It's important to understand that the word amuse means to not think. Right? Like atheist is not God, you don't, don't have God, so you put the A in front of it and it negates it. Well, muse is to think, and amuse is to not think. So <laughs> amusement is stuff you do, and there's nothing wrong with having things that are amusements as long as that's not your whole life. <laughs> Times when you don't, you, know, you don't have to think. Sometimes we all want that. We want to go and just relax and, and not have our minds all you know, all cranking away. And uh, so amusements, you know, they take us away and let us just have, have some, some peace like that. But uh, Postman's basic thesis in that book is that we have become, you could say, gluttons for entertainment. I'm not sure if he uses that word. Like I said, it's been a while since, or that terminology, it's been a while since I read it. But uh, that we're losing our ability, he talks a lot about, in, to engage in uh, public discourse, you know, to talk about things that matter, like how we're going to you know, shape our society or whether this is right or wrong. Those kind of things we just want to, like, we don't care. No, I don't care about you know, that. I don't want to think about that. Or we're just amusing ourselves all the time. Just, I, I want to go play. I want to go, let me, let me go find a video. Let me go, that, that kind of thing is what, what he's talking about. So it's a very, it's a kind of a searching book, really, in that way. And then uh, the person who requested this topic wants me to look in particular at how amusement interferes with our Christian service, the mission that we have with God, from God. The word productivity is the title of another book that was written by Doug Wilson, in which he talks about the importance of pressing on to carry out our mission from God. I read that book a little bit more recently, and it's a very helpful book as well. Both of these books are helpful. But my goal here is not to do book reviews, but to look at the problem of how feasting on amusement erodes our service to God. Okay, if your whole focus is on play and games and amusements, then you're not serving God. <laughs> and it's very easy to fall into that mode. You're not thinking about mission. What do I need to do for God? But you're thinking about, how can I have fun? What, what fun thing can I do? What next fun thing? What next fun? What ne- next, 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 next. And it just goes on and on. So uh, I, I've chosen uh, three passages for this subject. One of them is the one we already read, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Another one is Luke 9, 23 through 36, that I'll read a little bit later in the service. And then still later in the service, the third one, is 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. And in looking at our subject, just to give you an overview, we'll first consider amusing ourselves to death. And for that, we'll look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And then we will look at what we ought to do instead. 
And for that, we'll look at the precepts that our Lord Jesus gives us about discipleship in the Luke 9 passage, Luke 9, 23 through 26. And then we'll look at what our service to God ought to look like practically. You know, how, do, how is it to look every day? Like what you do instead of amusing yourself, what do you do instead in your mission for God, your productivity, plug, plugging along for God kind of thing. So, so first then, amusing ourselves to death. In the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon describes the vanity of life not lived with reference to God. Life that is not lived for His glory is basically a nothing life. That's basically what what he shows us. He calls it life under the sun because the individual is seeking satisfaction. It's sort of like a closed world where there's nothing above. There's nothing, there's no, there's no heaven. He's living a what what can I do here apart from from God? This individual is operating as if the world is all there is to live for, this present world. Just the opposite of what we saw in our reading this morning, isn't it? While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. Because those things are eternal, the things that are not seen. Solomon wastes no time telling us that apart from God, there is no satisfaction to be found under the sun, apart from God. In Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 3, he says, The words of the preacher, the son of David. This is in the first chapter. Not, uh, I'm, the, our focus is more in the second, but I'm doing a little bit of overview here of the book. So in Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 3, he says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Okay, so the guy's really busy doing a lot of labor without reference to God. He says, what profit is it? It's just nothing. It's vanity. It's empty. It's got no substance to it. That's the overall thesis. It's very simple. If this life is all there is, you don't get anywhere no matter what you do. <laughs> no matter how much you build and how much you accomplish, you're going to die. You're going to lose it. It's all gone. It's really quite pointless. The word vanity, if you remember when we studied Ecclesiastes, some of you that were here a number of years ago, it's, uh, it's a word that refers to a vapor. So <laughs> it's like on, on a cold winter day when you breathe and you can see the breath come out. What happens to it? It's just gone. It just absorbs into the air, and it's, it's not there anymore. And that's the way that life is apart from God. There's nothing lasting to it. This book was such a, it was such a huge book for me when, when I first became a Christian because I realized that I was living, living for eternity now. I was living for God Almighty now. And before, it was all just, it was all vanity. It was, it was pointless. The book is set up with Solomon desperately exploring ways to find satisfaction under the sun. At the end of chapter 1, he talks about education. Like, I'm going to learn stuff. And there's some people that do that. They spend their whole life, you know, learning. And not that it's wrong to learn. These things are not necessarily, not saying that they're wrong. They're wrong when they're done without reference to God, though. Because you just spin your wheels. You don't get anywhere. So, uh, by means of education. And it only makes the person more frustrated. Because they learn about all the problems, and they look at all these different ideas and solutions, and there's no solution. You know, you look at the field of, uh, of psychiatry, and they've, 
You know, they've got, they've got hundreds of completely conflicting models about how you deal with problems. And they, they, don't even, they don't even agree with each other, and they go in circles, and it just never, it, it just never gets anywhere. Someone observed that those with the most learning, if God is not in it, are often the most gloomy individuals. <laughs> people that are learning, 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 what are they like? <laughs> They're usually quite sour people, aren't they? Because they know too much. It's like, <laughs> it's, all, it's all hopeless. You know? Chapter 2, the chapter that we're looking at today, though, Solomon addresses more particularly our, t- our topic that we have before us of amusement, pleasure, enjoying things that are in the world, finding satisfaction in the pursuit of pleasure of different kinds. Now, you can see how he describes his quest for pleasure in chapter 2. He dismisses abandonment to mirth and sensuality right off the bat. So, in other words, the, 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 what we could call the lower kind of amusement and what is perhaps really amusement, he, he says that's definitely not the way. He doesn't even, doesn't even explore that one. Solomon had a lot of wisdom, and so he knew, like, that's not even a possibility. In chapter 2, 1 and 2, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this also is vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? So this is talking about someone he could easily see, even from a worldly standpoint under the sun, that giving yourself up to unrestrained pleasure and passions, no one gets satisfaction doing that. Feeding your fleshly desires without restraint. You know, drinking endlessly, drugs, uh, sexual perversion or, or activity, just endless sexual activity uh, without restraint. There's, that doesn't bring satisfaction. That puts people in the gutter. You know, it, it, it's, it's destructive. Giving yourself over to endless laughter. You know, people that just always make a joke out of everything. <laughs> and they never want to pay attention to anything serious. Always wanting to be entertained. Constant, constant, constant entertainment. We might think here of a person who, you know, the person that runs up all their, their credit cards because they love buying things and they love going on vacations and they love having shiny new, new things. And then they have to deal with the bill collector. Oh, I'm going to have the best Christmas ever. You know, and they, they spend everything and then they have to pay the bills and they can't, don't have enough to heat their house. Or the one who follows their sexual passions without restraint and ends up with not only with empty relationships, but with angry ex-lovers, with offspring that are abandoned or even murdered and, and taken out, but also with an empty soul at last that isn't even able to enjoy sex anymore. I've met people like that. I think of one older man that I met that was like that. He, he couldn't even enjoy. He said, I don't have any pleasure in it. He, he grew up in, above a strip club that his dad one, ran. He was in the apartment upstairs. He said, when, when I see naked woman, it doesn't even, it's nothing. It's just like looking at a wall. And he, you know, he was maybe in his 60s or something. And uh, I met people that that happened to. Likewise, those who give themselves up to unrestrained drinking and drugs, they end up with many sorrows, oftentimes desperate addictions that 
that eat the very life out of them. It destroys their soul. Solomon had, and, and they don't enjoy it. It doesn't bring them pleasure. It's just like they have to do it to survive. Now, Solomon had the ability and resources, though, to pursue. So he dismisses that very quickly in just two verses. He's like, that's not the way. That's not it. But he had the ability and resources to pursue the higher kind of pleasure. Okay, what was that? He looked to have the best that this world can give from a well-regulated life. Okay, the kind of thing that people would look at and go, wow. You know, they, you, it's admirable in this world. You don't look at someone that's addicted to drugs and go, oh, wow, that looks wonderful. But you look at someone who has achieved all these things. Wow, look at that. That's, that's, wow, that's incredible. Look what he did. He puts it um, in verse 3. He says, I searched in my heart. He explains the whole philosophy here with these words. I, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom. So in other words, I didn't just like drink until I could not walk anymore, but I looked at how to use wine in a way that would be bring the maximum pleasure from it and uh, from everything. So that not so it destroys, but so that it enhances life. That's what he was going to do. He goes on, still verse 3, I searched how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I was on a quest to get out the best out of life that could be gotten under the sun. He sought true prosperity in the world and the enjoyment of the finer things of life. And I tell you, Solomon, he achieved what most people only dream of. It is incredible what he achieved. I mean, some people will achieve in one area, like they might have a whole, whole lot of money, but everybody hates them. You know, they, and they, they don't have any wisdom to share with anyone, and they're, they're just there in their little cocoon or whatever. And then there's other people that, you know, they're really, really popular. Maybe they're wealthy too, but then they've got other areas. They, they don't have any wisdom. And, you know, there's just all kinds of... Solomon, he really did have it all in terms of the world. He describes the beautiful houses that he built with beautiful gardens that produced fruit that he, for his household. They could eat fresh fruit that was right there growing. He had pools that would bring water to, to keep these things uh, you know, uh, hydrated. And uh, so, so he combined beauty with functionality in that way. He established beautiful order and harmony in the way that his household ran. When the Queen of Sheba came to see him, she said, Wow, your servants are so beautifully ordered. Everything is done so well. It was lovely to watch, you know, watch a meal being served and how they handled everything. It has been estimated from the food that he provided each day that Solomon fed among all of his servants and, and such about 35,000 people every day. I mean, this guy, this, this was huge, what we're talking about. He had the finest music, musical instruments. He had art he, from around the world. He enjoyed culinary pleasures and spices from all over the world. 
He had discourse with kings and people from around the world, friends and stuff. He had gold and so much abundance of gold and silver that silver wasn't even considered valuable anymore in his time. Precious stones. It was all ordered in artistic ways with uh, things that were made. He had military might. And this is an unusual one. Usually if you have a kingdom like that, then everybody's trying to attack you. But Solomon had peace. He actually, as a king that was wealthy, had peace where people were afraid to attack him. No one tried to invade until later on. There was a period there where he had all of this. People came to see just to see the beauty of his kingdom and to admire what what he was doing. He had various animals that he brought in and he had alliances with some of the you know, the great people of the world. He, he could sit down and have a discourse with someone about, about wisdom from, you know, India or, you know, all different parts of the world where people were, uh, were, were, and they would come to talk to him and learn from him and talk about animals. He had all this knowledge, all this understanding. And <laughs> he had 1,000 women, <laughs> 1,000 wives and concubines that he had taken into his home, beautiful women that were all there as part of his household. And they had, of course, the finest of everything, oils and beauty treatments and clothing and living spaces and servants that were serving and caring for them all through the day. He was respected all over the world as a man of unsurpassed wisdom and talent. God gave him the ability to have it all. And I think the Lord did that on purpose because we have a model here. I mean, Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This guy pretty much gained the whole. What did he not have that one might want to have? He, he had everything. But what was his conclusion after he achieved all of this? He sums it up in verse 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind, trying to herd the wind. There was no profit under the sun. He realizes he's going to die. He realizes that everything he did, everything he built will be left to others and who knows what they'll do with it. He's smart enough to know what happens. You have a rich father that builds a lot of things. What do his children usually do? They just, they just ruin it. They waste it. In verse 16 and 17, he says, For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever. You don't know any difference when they're in the grave. Uh, there was a story about, um, I'm trying to remember, it's one of the philosophers. I think it was with Alexander the Great. And he pointed at uh, a pile of bones. And he, 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 he was looking, the philosopher was looking at the bones. And the guy said, why are you looking at the bones? The king, the king you know, he said, why are you looking at the bones? He said, I, I was just trying to see the difference. Who's, this, was this guy a king or this one over here? You know, like, there's a leg bone, an arm bone. They, they look all the same. <laughs> that was his point. When you die, it's, it's no different. Since all that is now, it, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come, and how does a wise man die? As the fool. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. He realizes that in the end, all that is done under the sun will make no difference whatsoever, 
either to him or to anyone else, that it will all be forgotten. You leave it behind. In the world, there are many people who strive, deluding themselves. They think, if I could just have, if I could just have, if I could just have, whatever it is that they crave, then all would be well for me. Solomon says, no, that will not make you happy. Those who make it to the top will tell you if they're honest what Solomon told us. It's all vanity. The kid on the tricycle, oh, if I could ride a bicycle, gets his bicycle, he's all excited, but then a short time later, oh, I want to get a trail bike. And he gets a trail bike. Oh, I got a trail bike. Oh, I want to get a car. He gets the car. Oh, I got to have a faster car. And it goes on and on. And then eventually he says, well, cars are cars, you know, depending on how far he goes. But usually when people are still reaching, reaching for something that they don't yet have, then they're still excited about it, that that's going to be so wonderful. But once they get it, then they realize the situation. That's a way to illustrate this. Um, The same old, same old it becomes. I provided a number of testimonies about this when I preached a series from Ecclesiastes. It was back in 2013. Here's just one of them that I gave you at that time. It was with Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots. And they won three Super Bowl victories under his uh, leadership as a quarterback. And he had an interview on 60 Minutes. And the inter- in the interview, he said, I reached my goal, my dream, my life. And all his friends thought, now oh, he must be so happy. He made it. He made it to the top. But he said, I think... It's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And when asked what the answer is, he said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. He actually said it twice. So we might say that living for pleasure, living for amusement, actually ends up destroying ourselves destroying us. When you feed on pleasure without God, you eat up your own soul in the process. You eat up your soul because instead of feeding on Christ and growing in your relationship with God, you feed on your pleasures that distract you from God. And you think everything would be good if you just had this thing that won't really make any difference in the end once you get it. You use your entertainment or your achievement to fill you up Instead of looking to God to fill you up. So what happens? You're feasting, you're gorging on the stuff that you're pursuing. And yeah, there's some pleasure in when you first get it. When you're eating it. But then after you've got it, you've got to have something else. Got to have something more. It's like being hungry and eating something that's not food. You fill yourself up with what can never eternally satisfy your soul. And you're packed up with all that stuff. And nothing good comes from it. It might taste good, but it brings no lasting good. The Rolling Stones were right when they said, I can't get no satisfaction. Unlike Solomon, though, they did not repent and turn to the Lord. Let's now turn to consider the alternative to amusing ourselves to death according to the Lord. First, let's look at Solomon's conclusion. Solomon concludes that there is nothing better to do than to enjoy what we have obtained from God. 
In other words, to have the good things of this life as God's gift. It's not wrong to have beautiful houses and lands and all those things. Job had those things to the glory of God, and they can be had to the glory of God. But it's not, the, it's not an end in itself. So it's a gift from God. So look at verses 24 to 26 in Ecclesiastes 2. It says, Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For, here's the reason you can have real enjoyment, for God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. So to have it under the sun without reference to God is sheer vanity. There's no satisfaction. But when you have what you have as the gifts of God, as an expression of God's love to you, something that you thank Him for, truly thank Him for, and that draws you near to God, then you have real enjoyment. Because to be loved by God who gives us good things is where the satisfaction comes in. Not something that, it's something that will never end. God's love will never end. And even though the things are irrelevant, they may be taken away, another may be given, it's the fact of the relationship with Him and having a, a right relationship with Him and receiving blessing from Him that draws us to God rather than grasping things estranged from God so that we can't even enjoy what we have. So in other words, our lives should be full with like pursuing the things that are in this world, but not as an end in themselves, but as a means of glorifying God. When knowing God is your focus, things are important as expressions of His love and goodness. When they're taken away, you still have Him and you know Him. So it doesn't even matter whether you have or whether you don't have. Like the Apostle Paul, I have learned, he said, to be content with whatever I have, with little or with much. He knew how to thank God when he had an abundance and to enjoy what God had given him. And he knew how to do without and to still praise God and thank God when everything was taken away because it was God that he was after. He knew God when he had little. He knew God when he had a lot. And he knew God when it was in between. And that was what he was pursuing. To do it without God, vanity. Sheer vanity. At the end of the book, Solomon sums up the whole of his findings, and this is what he says. First, he says of life under the sun. Again, he reiterates, Ecclesiastes 12, 8, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then the last two verses of the book, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, that's what I was just talking about, and keep his commandments, do what's pleasing to him. For this is man's all, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Everything we do resolves itself at last in God. What I mean is, it ends up in God one way or another, either for blessing or for judgment. 
we end up before Him. If our relationship is right with Him, then all is blessed and fulfilling. If our relationship with Him is not right, then all that we have is ruined and miserable. It's that opposite. Black and white. Now I want you to look at what our Lord Jesus said about this. What He did is God's Son who came from heaven to do the will of God as a man. What did He have to say about this subject? He came to do what was pleasing to God. So what were His thoughts about these things, about living for our own pleasure apart from God. What did he say about that? Well, in our second scripture reading, we'll do that now, Luke 9, 23 through 26. This is what he said. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. So this whole idea of saving your life, losing it, uh, living for him, all of those things, that's what I was just talking about. Is this for God? Do you have what you have for God? Or when you don't have it, is, is your life still for God? You know, that, that's what we're talking about here. It's helpful to realize that Jesus said this right after his disciples confessed that he was the Christ. In verse 22, he told them that what his mission was, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed and be raised up the third day. And then he said to them, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He was definitely practicing what he preached. Okay, I'm getting ready to do this. This is what I'm getting ready to do because this is what God's called me to do. This is God's will. So I'm going to go and do this for God. I'm, going to, I'm not doing my own pleasure. I'm doing what he's given me to do. For the purposes of God's kingdom, that, that he might save his people, he was denying himself, taking up his cross. And he tells his disciples that if anyone wants to be saved, they must follow him. His desire was to glorify God. He did what he did for God, and that made it significant. He gives us three things here that we must do that he did. Deny yourself. That means that you must turn from your own way, from living according to your own pleasure and desire. You have to say no to yourself. It doesn't matter if your own way is to abandon yourself to sinful pleasures as a hedonist. Of course, you need to turn from that. Or if, like Solomon, it's to pursue the higher, finer things of life and get a great deal of respectability in the world, maybe that's what you're after, then uh, no, you have to say no. You have to deny whatever it is you set out like that. Or even if you have a very long list of religious attainments that you want to present to God, you know, like Paul the Pharisee, you know, I did all this stuff. I was more righteous than anybody else. Look at all the stuff that I did. Look how I gave generously. Look at how zealous I was. Uh, saying your prayers, living a moral life, all these kind of things. Like all of it, you have to say, no, it's not about me. It's not about that. It's about him. You have to turn from all of that. You have to see that whether you are addicted to cocaine or you're full of religion, you are a ruined mess when it comes to God's standard. Your only hope is in His mercy and forgiveness 
The only way of his mercy and forgiveness is through faith in Christ. You have to deny yourself. You have to say, I can't do this. Instead of obtaining life by escaping into pleasures or by your own works of righteousness, you can only find life by giving up your life to him. I said before that Jesus had to deny himself. How did he have to do that? Well, he had to leave the glory of heaven to come here. And then as a man who, in fact, was himself righteous, he had to represent us, the people he came to save. And he recognized that in doing so, in representing us, he would not be acceptable to God apart from him going to the cross and paying the penalty of all of our sins, which he had taken upon himself. He had to become part of a guilty people. And taking our guilt as a servant of the Lord meant he had to bear our iniquities in his own body on the tree. He is the servant of the Lord. He was the ultimate self-denying one. Brought in, And his self-denial was necessary because of our sin. Deny yourself. That's the first thing. Now, the second thing, take up your cross. This, we might say, is a call to accept the hard things that we must experience if we belong to Christ before we reach the end of our lives. Jesus told us that we would have to suffer many things for his sake if we come after him and that we must go through much tribulation to enter his kingdom. Preached about that a lot this morning. Why does he say that when his suffering is suffering that takes away our sin? Why would we need to suffer in this world now? Why, Why would that be? Well, he says that because although we're completely forgiven and accepted through his saving work, We need to be refined. It's his eternal purpose. In his eternal purpose, the Lord wants us to learn to trust him and to still serve him when it's difficult to do so. Because you see, we had trouble serving God. And so he wants us to learn to serve him when it's hard to serve him. And so he places us in this world at this time where we learn that. That's what Jesus had to do. He wants us to realize that honoring God and serving God is what matters and because we don't really know that. We think everything else matters. But the only thing that matters is serving God. So he t- gives and he takes away. And what do we learn from that? The value of God. Who God is. Job said, I heard about you before all my suffering. And I mean, he was quite, quite a godly man before all the suffering. But he said, now my eye sees you. Now I know you after going through all that. Because when everything was taken away, He had nothing left but God. And God used that. Through suffering now, he wants us to show other people as well in this fallen world that honoring God is what matters. When someone is threatening someone because they can't stand it, that they're serving God, and they say, we're going to kill you, and they say, okay, and they go ahead, they're they're good with it because they're trusting God, They, they don't understand that. But what you're doing is you're saying, serving God is the only thing that matters. You're making a very plain statement. You're denying yourself. And the, Job, you know, that, that's what Job wanted to show sa- Satan, that serving God, or what God wanted to sh- show Satan through Job, I should say, that serving God was what matters more than comforts and pleasures. Satan said, you take away all the things you've given him, Job? He said this to God. He said, then he'll, he'll curse your name. God said, okay, take them away. He did. We have to be willing to do hard things and to bear hard things, taking up our cross that God has called us to do and to bear. We have to go on for God even when we don't feel like going on. And when we do, we actually increase our joy 
because we learn that God is the only one that matters. We begin to see him elevated above everything else. You don't see that now very well, but that's what he's teaching you, to see him elevated above everything else. And that's where your real happiness, the only place it can come from. We come to grasp more and more how glorious he is and how worthy he is and how trustworthy and how gracious he is and how holy and just and how sinful we are. It is difficult, but beautiful and wonderful at the same time. Now, I would say again, as I did this morning, ask Abraham, ask Jacob, ask Moses, ask David, ask Jeremiah, ask Peter and Paul, ask Stephen, the first martyr that we're told about in the New Testament. They had to go through many things to enter the kingdom of God. They bore their cross and they learned of God. I was talking to someone today, you know, what what would Abraham have been like if he went to the land that God told him to go to and, and everything was great. No famine. He went there as a famine right away. He went there, no famine. Everything, prosperity. He's got crops, everything. Peace. He's there with Lot. They've got all this abundance that they're sharing. There's no conflict between them. And then he goes on and, you know, oh, yeah, you know, God's going to give us a son. And so, so they pray. And then the next week she gets pregnant. And then a baby comes, healthy baby. And, oh, God gave us our son. Praise God. You know, he's been happy with God. God does everything for him. Do you think? Abraham would have been the kind of man that when, if God said, take your son, your only son, and go up on Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice, he would have said, oh, okay. Okay. And go and do it. Because he trusted God that he would raise him up? No. He wouldn't have been that kind of man at all if that had been the kind of life he had. I hope that illustrates for you what I'm talking about. The cross is necessary. We don't get there without it. And it's only in this life that we have to bear the cross. But it's for a purpose. God has a purpose. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. It's not just about the abundance of the things that you possess. And then what else do you say? Follow me. This is our act of obedience to Christ. Every one of us is called to obey his word and to imitate him in our worship. We need to worship like Christ worshiped. Service. We need to serve like Christ served. Following the directives that he's given us. From the, in, in his word through the apostles. The great difference is that having denied ourselves, we no longer live according to our own pleasures and desires, but we live in conformity to his will. Looking to Christ in his word, not only for instruction, but for what else? We look to him for grace and strength to do his will. So we learn what his will is from the word, and then we look to him in his spirit for grace and strength to do his will. Putting off the old man, putting on the new man, growing into maturity in our faith so that we become renewed in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness after the image of him that created us. Knowledge, where, where we know and understand the truth, we grow up in it. Righteousness, where we do what is pleasing according to his word and his commands. And holiness, where we have an allegiance to God, where we are worshipers of God, where we love him and pray to him. Our lives are for him. This is what we want to grow up into. You see the powerful argument that Jesus gives us to motivate us to do this. He tells you that if you desire to save your life, that is to keep on living um, as the Lord of your own life, following your own passions and desires, you'll end up losing what you're trying to preserve. You, you can get it all. And you'll say, I've got nothing. What we saw before, when you feed on your own pleasure, those pleasures will themselves feed upon your soul. 
They will destroy you and they'll keep you away from God. They will keep you amused, but alienated from him. To repeat Jesus' words here, verse 24, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then, to incentivize you even more, Jesus asks that searching question, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world, like Solomon did, and loses his own soul? If he gains the whole world, is is to quote him here, as it said in Luke, and is himself destroyed or lost. Even if you could have all the prosperity and the success that Solomon acquired, what would you have if you lost your own soul? Would you like that? Would you like to have everything this world has to offer and then die and go to hell? It's a terrible exchange. A few years of happiness in this vain world, which happiness will never actually satisfy you, if that's what you're living for, even if you did get it, it won't satisfy you in exchange for eternal glory and communion and fellowship with God, who gives us all good things richly to enjoy, not to destroy ourselves, but to richly enjoy. Now, what is this life to which we're called, this denying of ourselves, this taking up of our cross and following Jesus, what does it look like in practical terms? Okay, what are we going to be doing here? Well, Peter tells us, takes, he tells us this in 1 Peter 4. Let's take a look at that. This is our third scripture reading. So give attention again to God's word. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer, listen to this, should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, the desires of men, but for the will of God. He's living for God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, of unbelievers, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to God, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in, in the flesh. But, that, sorry, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all these things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as of the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, To whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you see in that passage, first of all, how Peter explains that those who are willing to suffer for what they believe show that they have actually repented of their sins. Okay, they've ceased from sin is the way he says it. That's what he's getting at in verse 1. when he says that the one who has suffered on account of his faith has ceased from sin. Verse 2, no longer living the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men but through the will of God. So this is someone that's living for God. 
Someone that's willing to suffer to do the will of God is living for God. That's basically how simple it is. If you're willing to suffer to do the will of God, then you're no longer living for yourself, but you're living for God. Of course, we're not talking absolute. We all need to grow. But there's been a fundamental change. There's been a repentance so that now your life is about God before it was just about your own pleasures. Peter says that you have had plenty of time to live in your own desires after your own desires. Of course, the truth is it was never right to live according to those things that, that he talks about that don't please God, to uh, the, the things he says. He talks about walking in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Idolatries would be making up your own religion, right? Following the pagan religions and all those kind of things. You know, you got your temple prostitutes or, you know, whatever it might be. Your profession is false if you indulge in immorality and drunkenness. Okay, you haven't died to yourself. If you're doing the drinking parties and, and all of these things, getting drunk and pursuing sensuality and all that stuff, you don't know the Lord. You haven't repented yet. You haven't turned from your, your own pleasures to come and do the will of God. You're still dead in your trespasses and sins. It's just that simple. This is not the way of Christ. It's not the way of denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus. It's living like the Gentiles who don't know God. That's what he says. It's very plain language. There will be a visible change if that has been our behavior in the past that everyone can see because now you're a Christian. If there isn't, you have yet to deny yourself, yet to take up your cross and follow him. This does not mean that you won't enjoy the good things of this life. It actually means that you will enjoy the good things of this life. Uh, It means that you will reject the sinful, rebellious ways of this life that lead to destruction and that are contrary to the beautiful new way that your Savior calls you to live. You may be industrious, you may have beautiful things like Solomon, but you will have it for the glory of God. You will give thanks for it and give glory to God as the one who gave it to you. You will receive these things from His gracious hand, as what I talked about before, as so many tokens of His love, and it will cause you to love him more and more. So we're talking about what your life looks like. Okay? Not the drinking parties, all these kind of things. But now it's living for God and having the things that you have for his glory. You will serve him and worship him. You will use what you have in ways that honor him instead of ways that alienate you from him. You will take time each day to pray, to praise him, to read his word, to renew your commitment to him to look to Him for strength to live and to honor Him in your relationships with other people. You will confess your sin. You will keep His holy day. You will will bring your tithes into the storehouse. Peter tells you that the people of the world will think you're strange because of the change. Look at verse 4. I remember I was 20 years old when I made this change, and this is exactly what happened. If in regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. At the end of that year, that school, that academic year, when I was going home for the summer, my friend said, well, you're going to go home this summer, and when you come back, you'll be just like you used to be. I said, I don't think so. And I came back, and one of them actually asked me that first thing when he saw me. So, are you still religious? It's the way he asked it. Because there was a fundamental change that occurred and going from death to life. It's remarkable. You're living for God, and they speak evil of you. That's what Peter is saying. 
So you're living for God now. You, you, you people that Peter's, people Peter's writing to, you've been converted, and now your buddies are saying, like, hey, you're doing wrong. You're messing up. When, you, when you're living for God. It's remarkable. Peter declares that they have to answer to God for that. They know that you are doing what's right. Their guilt causes them to oppose you in doing what's right and to convince themselves otherwise. The Lord will, that it's not right, the Lord will deal with them. But Peter goes on in verse 7 through 11 to emphasize that living for God will involve living for others. It will include a vigorous, intelligent prayer life. Verse 7 says, But the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. You know what serious and watchful prayers are? Are they rote prayers? Got a little memorized prayer. Now lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep or something like that. You do that every day. And you don't even think about what you're saying. No, these are prayers that arise from a keen sense of temptation that is in our times. And of your brothers and sisters that are facing those temptations and are being drawn in them by them. And of you who are facing those temptations and being drawn by them. And your children that are being facing them. It's watchful prayers. Our fears, our anxieties, our greeds, our ambitions, our lusts, and our plain old distractions that pull us away from serving God. The true Christian is watchful in his prayers. He's alert to what is going on around him and in his life and the dangers that are there that he faces and the others face, and he looks to God in faith for deliverance. He does not allow himself to be swallowed up with the pursuit of the good life or with sensual pleasures in such a way that he forgets his maker. But... Above all these things, Peter says, so the first thing is the watchful, ardent prayers. The second thing Peter tells you is it involves loving others by serving them however God has gifted you. You will find, let me say about this, you will find ways to serve others because if you love them, your service will be service that helps them to go on for God. If you know God, the orientation, the focus of your service is going to be to help them to go on for God, to know Him, to trust Him, to love Him, to obey Him. Verse 8 through 11 spells it out. Verse 8 shows that the love is what fuels your service to others. And above all these things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover the multitude, a multitude of sins. Yes, even though you come short in many ways, when you're in Christ, there is a care for others, a love for others that keeps you going And in a sense, it makes up for many of your shortcomings, many of your sins. Christ has transformed you into someone who not only cares about him, but who actually loves other people because you see how Christ has loved you. With verse 9, he begins to talk about how your love will show when you are no longer living according to your own desires, but for Christ. He says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. You're doing it not as a duty that you feel like you've got to do, but you're doing it because you love people. You'll be welcoming to others. You'll be welcoming, you'll welcome them into your home. You'll share what you have with them. You'll welcome them into your life, showing interest, care, and concern. There's so little of this in our world today. People are so isolated. They're so lonely. Nobody cares about them. We're often not even hospitable to our own spouse or our own family, much less to strangers. In verse 10, Peter says, 
As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You say, oh, but I don't have any gifts. And I'll say to you, but no, if you're a Christian, you have gifts. You don't have to be able to go through a list and say, oh, I have this gift and have, check off little boxes, you know, which gifts do I have? That's not what we're talking about here, you know. You don't have to be able to label them. Now, there may be some ones that you can label, but if you love people, you know what you're going to do? You're going to find ways to bless them. You're going to find ways to do good to them. If you love them, if you don't love them, then you'll, oh, I don't have any gifts. I can't do anything. I'm not able to help. I'm not able to do anything worthwhile. You'll, you'll find ways to bless them, to do good to them. You'll be able to help people go on with Christ and go on in their love and obedience to Him. This is, this is deeply convicting. This, this calls us up short. But you know that it's true. If you love people, you find ways. You don't just say, oh, I can't do that. You can. However, whatever it is, so much of what we do to help other people involves talking to other people and our speaking. So Peter says here, when you speak, it's as the oracles of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as of the oracles of God. In other words, you bring gracious words to be true, words of truth, words that, that represent God and in and, and his holiness, you, that challenge your brothers and sisters, also encourage them and refresh them in the promises of God, get them focused on God when they were losing sight of him. You, you, you bring that into the equation. And coupled with speaking is active service, ministry to needs, so that Peter also says, verse 11, if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. You don't have to do it beyond your ability. Just do it with the ability God gives you. You use your resources God has given you to help them out. It could be financial support, helping someone to clean their house, care for their children when they're in need. You're doing things in expression of your real relationship with God, of your walk with God, of your love for God. And all of this then you do for the glory of God. Look at verse 11. He says that in all things, why do you do this? Why do you do the hospitality? Why do you do the speaking the oracles of God? Why do you do the service, the ministry? That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So you're doing it to glorify you? No, you're doing it to glorify God. You're doing it because you love Him and you love Christ. You're no longer living for the lust of your flesh, but for Him who died and rose again. Instead of amusing yourself to death and doing things that don't go anywhere, that don't have any purpose, that don't have any real lasting meaning or significance, following your own passions and desires, you forsake all of that, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow Christ. You love Jesus because He first loved you. You love Jesus because He redeemed you. He gave all for you. He gave His life for you, so now you live for Him. He gave His life for you, so now you give your life for Him. Your mission is to help others know God, find God, see God, live for God, worship God, know God's salvation, rejoice in God, give thanks to God. It's about Him. And then you find the fullness that can only come from God. Please stand and let's pray. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the powerful words that Solomon spoke and that our Lord Jesus Christ spoke and that Peter spoke. And we pray, Father, that in receiving these truths, that we would truly bring them into our lives. Father, we cannot listen to such things as we have today without saying that, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What have I ever said that would really help people? What, what have we ever done that would really lead people in the, in the way? Father, we, we need your grace. We need your help. And we thank you that you are so kind to us. You're so patient with us. We think about Jesus' disciples and how they went along with him and how they were so just blundering idiots, really. And uh, they're, they're arguing as he's getting ready to go to the cross and told him several times that he's doing so. They're there arguing about who is the greatest among them, who will have the highest seat, who will be in the highest, noblest place. Father, we see how twisted and backwards and corrupt we are. But we thank you that there is mercy and forgiveness with you. And we thank you that when there is such a thing as a conversion where our orientation is changed, our orientation is changed from living for our own pleasures to living for our God. And then we find we really are living for the true thing that will give pleasure. And Father, we don't, we don't realize that because we're so twisted. But once we do, once we do it, then we realize that. And Father, we will one day realize it perfectly when we get to glory. But we pray that you would help us now, Lord, to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. We pray, Father, that we would do hospitality and um, speaking and the words we speak to each other and the services that we render to each other, that we would do all of these for your glory and honor as our Savior, for Jesus our Savior. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen and bless us with the filling of your Holy Spirit because we really do have a long way to go and there's a lot of change that needs to happen. But Father, we thank you that under Jesus, that we have his righteousness. We rest in that, Lord. We wouldn't dare to rest in our own righteousness. But we do want to be more holy. We want to be more what you've called us to be. And the ironic thing is, if we do that, if we abandon our own pleasure, then we will find happiness. The happiness that we sought in the wrong way, we will find if we go in the right way. So we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to to bless us to do these things, that you would give us grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May your love abound more and more in all knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.